Good evening, how are you all? Glad you're here. We finished, uh, we finished the, the biography of Hezekiah last week. I'm a little hot. Uh, we finished the biography of, of Hezekiah last week. Um, and so we just have a few weeks left before we break a couple of weeks for the summer and then we'll pick back up. So let me give you a preview of what's coming. This is for us at Evergreen. Uh, 2022 is the year of endurance. And so um, I, I'm going to teach for the next couple of weeks on, on a little series that I call New Testament Postcards. Uh, there are four books in the New Testament that are, that are single chapters. You know, a postcard is not meant to be an extended letter. You know, it, it's usually um, having a great time, wish you were here, be home soon. And that's about all it is. It's really designed to let the recipient know that the sender is thinking of them. But there's no detailed explanation of things. There's no uh, long descriptions of, of much. It's just touching base. Uh, there are four books in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament, that I call postcards because they're not full letters. They're just a writer a touching base. Now, I'm going to do three of them on over the next three Wednesday nights. Uh, tonight we're going to do 2 John, next week we'll do 3 John, and in two weeks we'll do Jude. Um, you say, well, there's one more. Well, it's Philemon. I'm going to do Philemon on a Sunday morning in a few weeks and it is a part of a different series. But after we take a break for a couple of weeks in May, then we start back in the summer uh, with our summer kids programs and, and all of that. And, and so on Wednesdays in the summer, I'm going to teach, I'm going to do something I've never done before. I'm going to teach over the course of eight weeks, um, the first nine chapters of Proverbs. Now Proverbs is notoriously difficult to preach because it's just a collection for the most part of, of sayings and and pithy observations about the way life works. There's not a narrative to it. There's not even always a consistent flow of ideas. So it's a little bit challenging. And because of that, I've preached in Proverbs occasionally, but I've never tried to preach through Proverbs. Uh, the first nine chapters create uh, stand alone as sort of a, uh, a, a unique part of that book. And so that's our summer project. Um, let me tell you about Sundays. Pardon if, if this sounds like a commercial, but, but I find, it, I find it's, it's helpful if you kind of know that there's a method to my madness. Uh, beginning this Sunday, I'm going to start a new teaching series. We have finished the section of the Gospel of John. We went through from chapters 4 through chapter 8. When we come to the fall, we'll pick John up again, and in the fall we'll do chapters 9 through 13. But I want to do two series between now and then on Sunday mornings. Because this is the year of endurance, I'm going to teach a series over the next uh, several weeks entitled Enduring Passions, those aspects of the Christian life that are timeless in that every generation has, uh, has advanced the cause through those same disciplines of the faith. And they are, uh, we, they are a part of the DNA 
of, of a biblical church, not just Evergreen, but any church that tries to be biblically faithful. And so um, using our sort of our church motto as a, as a, as a, a framework, uh, our, what we say is that at Evergreen, we're, we're here because we, we're committed to knowing God, sharing life, and changing the world. Now, that sounds ambitious, but the fact of the matter is, anytime you're about God's business, uh, those are exactly the things that happen. God wants to be known. He's created us with a desire for community so that we share life. And in His power, we change the world. So I'm going to do six weeks of, uh, around those three elements, and I'll be teaching that. Uh, Mother's Day and Father's Day, are, are, they sneak in there somewhere. And then on Sunday morning, I'm going to do another thing that I've never done before. Um, I'm not going to do the entire book. I'm not going to do it verse by verse because there's 48 chapters. But I'm going to do an eight-week teaching series from the book of Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel is one of the really unusual books of the Bible. But I've always felt like one of these days, walking on streets of gold... There's going to be kind of a scruffy guy come up to me and say, hey, wanted to meet you. My name is Ezekiel. Maybe you read my book. <laughs> and so we're going to spend some time in Ezekiel because it is a fascinating message that I think fits our generation. Ezekiel was a prophet to the exiles living in a hostile, a hostile culture um, controlled by uh, by a government and a culture that hated what they loved. And so I think there's going to be some, some real value there. So, so I, I, don't know, I don't know if any of that sounds fun to you. Um, it, it's, it sounds like a blast to me, so that's what we're going to do, all right? Um, but if you, want to, if you want to read ahead, you might go ahead and start trying to work your way through um, the first nine chapters of Proverbs, and you might want to consider... Uh, the book of Ezekiel. So there's your, your preview. If you want to know about this, we, have, we are hosting tomorrow uh, a luncheon for the Hope is Alive ministry. And, uh, and so they, they have such a production involved in that luncheon that, that they asked permission to go ahead and set up all their technical stuff today. They've been here most of the day. And uh, so I told them to be sure it was turned off the whole time I'm teaching. So if it you know, if I'm teaching and you start giggling, I'll know there's like a Mickey Mouse cartoon or something behind me. Open your Bibles to 2 John. One of the shortest books in the entire Bible. In fact, um, 2 John and 3 John together comprise only about 250 words in Greek. Um, they can be put on a single page. And the idea of endurance, I've called this lesson in 2 John, walking in love. Now, that's actually a word that, that is going to be used in, in the opening verses here, walking in love. And, and it's important. I, I like that because some of you may be carrying a translation uh, that will use the, the translation living in love. Um, the word is literally walking, but it's uh, but it's used in a way that uh, communicates 
a lifestyle. That's, all, uh, that's a biblical image that is often found. Um, and, and you would understand it if, if, I, if I were to say to you, uh, you should walk uprightly in life. You would understand that I'm probably not giving you advice about your posture. We use that kind of language. You should walk uprightly in your life. You would understand that to be uh, a speech that indicates a kind of life. Well, in 2 John, I've named this lesson Walking in Love. Next week in 3 John, uh, I'm, I'm going to call that one Walking in Truth. Our, our lives are to be characterized by those elements, love and truth. So you've got an outline there in front of you. Uh, this, uh, this book is written, uh, identified only as the elder, but for, uh, for the almost unanimity of opinion for 2,000 years, is that this elder who writes this book is John the Elder. Um, even, even that name, uh, even that, that title is, uh, is interesting, John the Elder, uh, because the, the, the ancient church practiced typically a plurality of elders, um, I don't know that this is necessarily a reference to John in a formal capacity as a pastor of a church. It may just be that he was really old. And, and he, it wasn't John an elder of such and such church. It was just John the Elder. Um, we see that, for example... Uh, among Jesus' disciples. There was James, and then there was James the Less, or James the Younger. Uh, often those designations were made to, um, to, to differentiate between people that shared the same name. We do it all the time. Uh, we, we, we say Michael G, and, and maybe there's another, you know, Michael, Michael S or something. We, we differentiate those when, when there are shared names. So John the Elder may have may just be uh, that may just be a recognized name by which he went, um, by which he was known. He was called the Apostle of Love. When you when you work through the Gospel of John, love is a constant theme. When you read through his first letter that is entitled First John, man, the two great themes of First John are assurance of salvation and love for the brothers. He was called the apostle of love because this was a characteristic of virtually everything that he did. Tradition tells us that in his very last days, this is after he had been exiled on the island of Patmos and had been released and brought back in his extreme old age. And, and, and tradition tells us that he lived uh, past his 100th year. In extreme old age, it, it was said that they would carry him into the church where they would put him in front of the, the, the assembled congregation. And, and, and his last recorded message was simply to say, Dear children, as you've heard from me again and again, love one another. John is a great reminder because the church is to be defined by the love that we have for each other. In fact, 
Jesus is the one who said, that's the very way they're going to know that you belong to me. The problem is, if I, this is rhetorical, so don't raise your hands, but, but if I were to ask uh, how many of you have been a part of a church that was not characterized by a loving church family, a love that they shared for one another, I suspect almost every hand in the room would go up. Children, that's not right. That's not who we are. That's not who we were meant to be. Let me read this entire little letter. I've broken it into four segments there you have in your outline. Uh, We'll look at these realities of faith, as I've called them, uh, as we see his admonition for us to walk in love. Second John, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth. Because of the truth which remains in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I was overjoyed to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received a commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you are to walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who remains in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds." Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made complete. The children of your chosen sister greet you. A postcard. That's it. Historically, what we can assess from this is that the author appears to be John, He's writing to a chosen lady, but there are several things in this little letter that seem to indicate to us that that he is using um, a personification and that by, by using the phrase chosen lady, he's referring to a church. Um, it, it, it seems to be the idea that the church as a chosen lady is the bride of Christ and that those who are in the church are the children of that unity. So he writes to um, this chosen or elect lady. In the last verse, he'll mention that the children of your chosen sister greet you. Another indication, he's probably writing to a church that he's not pastor of, but has enough recognized authority as the last living apostle the last, uh, one of the very last eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus himself, uh, John certainly had a reputation that 
that crossed the Roman Empire from church to church. That's why he's able to write a letter with no more identification to it than just the elder. But he writes to a church, a chosen lady and her children, and then sends greetings at the end from their chosen sister, probably referring to another church, possibly the church that he was in fact attached to. Uh, tradition tells us that John spent a good portion of his um, ministry after the life of Jesus uh, at the church in Ephesus. Uh, it seems to have been out of that uh, city that he was arrested and sent into exile. Uh, very possibly that that's where he returned in his last years after he left the island of Patmos. Second John has an interesting uh, feel here because it's not simply a postcard. It's not just uh, a really brief letter. Uh, one writer put it this way, and I really like this description. He said, Second John feels like a note snatched from the everyday correspondence of an apostle. This was not a, 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 a long thought through uh, theological treatise like Paul often wrote. Uh, there doesn't seem to be uh, a serious agenda of topics like, uh, for example, Paul gives to us in, in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, Paul has a list of issues to deal with, and like he's checking them off, he just goes down the list and deals with one problem after another. This feels much more like, um, uh, it would comparatively today, it would, it would be much more like a text message that says, hey, just checking in with you. I want to make sure you're still doing what's right. And I want to remind you to be on the alert for one thing. There was one thing on John's mind besides encouraging them in love, besides um, warning them against extending hospitality to the enemies of Christ. But one thing on, on John's mind as an apostle, as one who had a kind of extended uh, archbishop, if you will, influence over the churches of Asia Minor. He says, I, I, I want to remind you to be on the alert. Do not go soft with the false teachers that are everywhere these days. Now, we'll bring out some of that, but that's, that's a part of what's going on here. He starts by saying, in a sense, this is a letter, uh, like, like old ancient letters, uh, didn't have an address on the the envelope, per se, it opened with the address. Here he's saying, the old man to the chosen lady and her children. An apostle of the church, this word lady, another reason why I'm pretty confident that he's writing to a church is because this word in Greek is the feminine form of the word Lord. Um, the matching title for... Uh, the feminine side of, of, of what goes with, with the title given to Jesus. So I do think that this is, uh, this is a church that he's talking to and her spiritual offspring, her children. He says, I'm writing to you, to those of you whom I love. Now, this is a, a, regular, a regular word in, in classical Greek. It's the word agape. You know it. If you only know one Greek word, that's probably the Greek word you've heard of. In classical Greek, it had, um, 
it had more of a sense of just devoted love. It is only in the Christian development of the vocabulary that agape took on a meaning higher and deeper than, than just um, devoted love. It becomes a, a kind of self-sacrificial love. It's the word assigned uh, to what Jesus uh, did for us. When Jesus said, no, there's no greater love than a man would lay down his life for a friend, he's using this word agape, and he's investing it with a significance, a depth that really in classical Greek, it didn't fully have yet. It's an evolving word, and the New Testament gives it a, a quality uh, that, that was incredible. It meant uh, the kind of love that was marked by loyalty, by seeking the good of other people, by caring for others. Um, we need, to, we need to recover this because even in our day, well, not even in our day, especially in our day, the word love has been um, diluted, if you will. In, in, in ancient Greek, there were different words used for love. Greek is a much more philosophical language. It's a much more um, precise language in, in some ways. And so you have you have at least three and probably four different words that were used for love uh, commonly. Um, agape was the highest, but agape, what's happened today is the word love in our generation has come to, to have a connotation of, of, of emotion, of sentiment. Um, we fall in love, we fall out of love. Uh, one of the strangest pieces of advice that, that, I, that I give to, to people, particularly in, in sort of marriage counseling situations, um, when somebody says, you know, I, I just don't love him anymore. Okay. How do you treat him? Well, probably not too good. Because, did I mention I don't love him anymore? Yeah, but see, what we do is we make love an emotion, and then we let our actions chase our emotions. Emotions are great companions, but they are lousy leaders. The biblical concept of love is not a feeling, it's not an emotion, it's not a, an, an affection, it's a decision. It's a choice to act in a self-sacrificing, loving way. And what's remarkable about the way God has hardwired us is that uh, when you choose to act lovingly, an amazing thing happens. You start to love what you have practiced love on. Caring for others, a loyalty and seeking their good versus uh, the kind of affection that's really meant to provide self-gratification. We like feeling in love because it makes us feel good. John says, I love you. I would sacrifice for you. I would serve you. But not just any old way. He qualifies it. I'm writing to the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth. 
The dynamic behind Christian love is, is not just a, a merely intellectual knowledge, but an internal acceptance of the truth that produces an external Christ-likeness in life. In other words, what you believe determines what you think. And what you think determines how you act. And how you act circles back around and confirms what you believe. I love that John says, I, I, I love you, but he says, I love you in truth. Now, the reason that's important is because of what he's going to say in the rest of this little letter. He's going to talk to them about his shared heart, but it's marked by love, not affection, although I'm sure that he had affection for this, for this collection of believers, but it's not primarily affection. It's primarily a commitment to serve them in a self-sacrificing way and to do so in truth. We have parents who are afraid to discipline their children because they're afraid their children won't like them. We have people who are afraid to tell their family members or their co-workers the truth because they're afraid that they'll be offended and won't like them anymore. Listen, when you don't speak the truth, now, now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, that you're a bull in a china closet and you bull through every, every room just telling people off right and left. That is not Christian love. But Christian love has a characteristic of truth to it. And if you are not a truth teller, then essentially you're not exhibiting or practicing biblical love. In, other, in fact, what you're doing is when, when you don't want to tell people the truth, it's because you're more concerned about your gratification. I want to be liked. I want people to, to see me as popular. I want, to be, I want to be on everybody's good side. Well, John's, John loves these, this, this church, but like all of the apostles, he loves them enough that he's going he's to tell them the truth. He says, I love you in truth. I, I love you in truth, but it's not only me. It's also all who know the truth. In other words, there is within the shared community of the faith this, uh, this attitude of service for each other. Let me tell you how this, this will show up. We don't notice it so much around here because, you know, we go to a church with, you know, a thousand people. So we have a lot of friends. It's possible to just have Christian friends and not really be out in the world much. But if you travel, I've traveled in South America and Central America. I've been in Africa and Russia. I've been all over Asia and, and India. And here's the thing. It's not when you just meet another American. I mean, that's, that's always refreshing. But when you meet another Christian brother in a place where you didn't know five minutes ago that you had a Christian brother, and you cross paths and you find that, you've never met that person. You didn't know their name until just five minutes ago. But there is an instant family bond 
that pulls us together. There is, there is a reality that we share the same Holy Spirit with every believer in every nation, of every tribe, of every tongue, of every people group, and that commonality is greater than all of the other things that make us distinct. Our, our racial background, our socioeconomic background, our education background, all of that fades away. Now, when we're surrounded by Christians, we sort of pick and choose the ones we really want to hang out with. But when you're out there in the world, man, any real Christian that comes along, you will latch on to them. Why? Because that's, that's a gift that's been given to us. He says, I love this church that I'm writing this postcard to. But everybody that knows the truth also shares this love. It's not, John's saying it's not unique to me. Why is that shared? Verse 2, because of the truth which remains in us and will be with us forever. You see, when I say we share the Holy Spirit, guess what? Sharing the Holy Spirit means that we have a reality, a presence, a person dwelling in us, and that person dwelling in me, dwelling in you, dwelling in other sincere, authentic believers, that person, he loves all the same things in each of us. And so as true, authentic Christians, we find ourselves drawn by that, that life that pours out through us, drawn to the same things. That's why John can, can um, in 1 John, uh, speaking about assurance of salvation, he, he has about 10 different places where he says, and we know that we're in him because da-da-da. And he gives an evidence. He'll say, we know that we're in him because, uh, because we love his word. Listen, you do understand that, that love for the word of God is not natural. It's supernatural. If you enjoy reading the word of God, I mean, if you... If you recognize that there's value and, and you draw something from it, that's an evidence of salvation. Now, there are people who treat the Bible as a historical artifact. They're interested in it in the same way that they're interested in, in other ancient documents, Plato or Socrates or Aristotle. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being drawn to God's Word. He says in another place, we know that we're in him because we have love for the brothers. Do you know that people say, you know, Christians shouldn't behave the way they do sometimes. Boy, that's true. I mean, some Christians just don't act like Jesus all the time. But the fact that we have love for one another despite our imperfections, you do understand that that thing that we share in, 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 in the family of the church that's not natural. That's supernatural. That's why people say, oh, I don't have much use for the church. Well, in the same way that a love for the brethren is an evidence of salvation, an apathy or an indifference to the brethren is evidence for the opposite, that you don't have the Spirit of God in you. Why? Because the Spirit of the Lord loves the church in all of its messiness. He loves the church. And so what John is telling us here 
is that we have this truth in us that we will have forever. It's a permanent and eternal gift, this life that has been granted to us. And because that truth displays itself in practical, loyal love for the brothers, he's, he's emphasizing that he's not just fond of the church, but he's writing to them out of a self-sacrificing love based on the truth of the presence of God in his life that is shared by everybody else that has that presence. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. Well, let's jump to the end. He says, in truth and love. There's those same two characteristics that he's always going to attach together. Love is practical service as an act of will. Truth is the basis upon which that service is carried out, the reality of the Spirit in us. He's always going to put truth and love together. But I don't want you to miss what he says before that because it's a little bit awkward to read it in English. But I, I, and I, I probably wouldn't emphasize this that much except that we've just been through some chapters in John that I think you need to see the parallel here. He says, this peace that will be with us comes from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Now, he could have just said, this peace comes from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. In fact, as far as the way it kind of rolls off the tongue, that's almost what you would expect him to say. To say he, it comes from God the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, that seems a little redundant to our ears. But I want to remind you where we've been on Sunday mornings over the last several weeks. From John chapter 5, especially John chapter 6, through 7 and into 8 that we just finished, what is this constant battle that Jesus has been fighting with the religious leaders? I'm one with the Father. I came from the Father. I'm the Son of the Father. I'm going back to the Father. I mean, that was such a major important uh, point of the teaching of Jesus and it was one of the contentious points that they just kept hammering against him over and over and over. They didn't like that Jesus seemed to be suggesting that he had a relationship with the Father that they didn't have, which that's precisely what he was suggesting. In fact, they were, uh, when they spoke of God, you remember in, in, in John chapter 8, uh, when they're questioning Jesus' uh, illegitimate birth, they said, we have God as our Father. Okay, in, in that day and time, it wasn't unheard of for a good and faithful Jew to, to reference God as Father. But it was more like Father of the nation. It was Father of Israel, the, 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 the Father of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What Jesus transformed was sitting in private with the disciples, giving them permission to speak to Abba Father, a term of household intimacy. 
Now, we don't use this language much in, in, in a public setting because it, it sounds disrespectful even though it's not. But the, the comparison is where the Jews might refer to God as Father, Jesus is, is talking about Daddy. He's talking about intimacy. We've always used that language to distinguish something. We, we say, you know, you only have to know a basic biology to become a father. But you have to invest a lifetime to be a daddy. I mean, my oldest daughter is mid-30s. She's all grown up. She's got three kids of her own. But she calls me daddy. Why? Because I'm biologically her father, but in her heart and in her mind, the relationship that we have is much more intimate than that, than that term. What, what is being suggested here is, is John is going back to what must have been some very impressioned remembrances that had been hammered into his mind. He was present for all of those debates, all of those conversations. And so what he's doing here is he's taking yet one more opportunity to reemphasize what he heard Jesus emphasize again and again and again. We have this peace. We're, we live based on truth. We express in our concrete actions a kind of self-sacrificing love. And we do all of that because it has come to us from God the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Now, I'm going to show you, it's not just a reference back to the, to the Gospel of John, but I want you to see um, when we get this next section, a shared truth. I've spent 30 minutes on the first three verses. <sighs> Maybe we'll just do all three weeks out of Second John, I don't know. All right, verse, verses 4 through 6, a shared truth. He says, I was overjoyed to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received a commandment to do from the Father. Now I ask you, lady, not as though I were writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, that you are to walk in it. I was overjoyed to find some of your children walking in truth. Apparently, John has had the opportunity to cross paths with some members of this church. Now, whether they were on a mission to visit him particularly, or whether they just crossed paths at some point, part of why I think this little short letter, not very long, not, not overly detailed, I think he jotted it down quickly so that the, 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 the people that he was visiting with as they're returning home would be able to take not just a, a verbal greeting, hey, John says to say hello to everybody, but to have a note from him. And, and, and I think this is part of the reason. By the time we get to the last part of the first century, John is the only disciple still alive, the only original disciple still alive. But by the end of the first century, the church has already developed an understanding that the writings of the eyewitness, the eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus, 
the writings of that very first generation of those who followed Jesus, those writings, we don't yet have a formal canon of Scripture, but we do have a recognition that the writings of the eyewitnesses have been circulating among the churches and that there is some stature assigned to those writings. And so I think maybe part of John's motivation was not just to say, hey, listen, tell everybody back home that I, that I love them, that I'm, I'm going to try and come see them. He writes it down, even though it's brief, even though it's just a short little postcard, he writes it down because the writings of the apostles have become, uh, have, have begun to develop a consensus of, of what we call inspired scripture. And so I think he wrote it down because he felt an obligation to not just pass along a verbal message that would be lost, but to write it down because the Spirit was already collecting and utilizing uh, these writings and the churches recognized. You know, there's a lot of crazy theories. Uh, back when Dan Brown wrote um, The Da Vinci Code, man, a page turner of a book. But it was this idea that a lot of people believe that the church was got a bunch of guys behind closed doors and, and they, they, they kicked some documents out and kept other documents because they were trying to create a scenario where they could consolidate power. That's not how the canon of the New Testament was formed. Nobody, nobody got together and, and assembled it. It was circulated among the churches. There was already a broad consensus among believers about what writings had the qualities of inspiration, what writings seemed to have more than just historical interest, but they had life-changing power in them, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. The councils, when they began to assemble a canon, all they did was rubber stamp the, the consensus of the churches. So John felt an obligation to put his words uh, in text so that, it could, uh, so that it could be circulated. He found some visitors who were returning to their home. He gave them this letter. He was gladdened, I think, when he spent time with them because he understood that they were serious followers of Jesus. They were authentic believers, and their lives reflected that. And he, I think John concluded that they were probably representative of their church at large. So he appeals to the church in this little note on the basis of what he saw in, those, in the lives of those visitors. In other words, when somebody tells me, and this, ha this happens, folks, don't think that it doesn't. When somebody says, um, man, I need to come visit your church. I know so-and-so. And I know the kind of life they live, and they go to Evergreen, so Evergreen must be a great church. Do you realize that the way you live your life reflects most of all on the Lord's reputation, but it reflects on the church's reputation? People are watching us and don't think they're not. Well, who am I? I'm not anybody. Why would anybody watch me? Because you're the only Jesus some people know. And they're paying attention. That's what John says here. 
I, I ran across some, some of the children from your church, some of, the, some of the, the believers, and man, I was so impressed by them that it gave me uh, an encouragement in my heart um, for your church as a whole. So he appeals to the church, and he, and he gives them this command. He says, uh, you're, be sure you continue to live your lifestyles on the authority of God's word, and, and the urgency here is, is love. Flashback a couple of pages. 1 John chapter 3, look at verse 16. I think this, this relates to, to, what, to what's happening in 2 John. In 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 16, he writes, We know love by this. In other words, we can recognize love in this way. That Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. Whoever has worldly goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain in him? Little children, let's not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Okay, here he uses the words deed, meaning action and truth. But see, over here what we've said in 2 John is when he uses the word love, he's talking about action. He's talking about practical expressions of love. So in deed and in truth, in 1 John is, is virtually the same of what he's saying in 2 John. Uh, live and walk in love and in truth. He says, I'm, I'm not writing a new commandment. You've known this ever since you came into the faith. Live according to the Father's commands. And his primary command was to love one another. I want to read you a little story that, that I found. Um, there's a book called A Primer for Preachers by a, a pastor named Ian Pitt Watson. And, uh, and this is just a fascinating little book because uh, I think about this story occasionally. I went and looked it up today so that I could read it to you tonight. But I think about this story occasionally when I meet somebody that says something really stupid like, you know, I like Jesus, but I'm not much on the church. He says, there is a natural, logical kind of loving that loves lovely things and lovely people. That's logical. But there's another kind of loving that doesn't look for value in what it loves, but that creates value in what it loves, like Rosemary's ragdoll. When Rosemary, my youngest child, was three, she was given a little rag doll, which quickly became an inseparable companion. She had other toys that were intrinsically far more valuable, but none that she loved like she loved the rag doll. Soon the rag doll became more and more rag and less and less doll. It also became more and more dirty. If you tried to clean the rag doll, it became more ragged still, and if you didn't try to clean the rag doll, it became dirtier still. The sensible thing to do was to trash the rag doll, but that was unthinkable for anyone who loved my child. If you loved Rosemary, you loved the rag doll. It was part of the package. 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. Love me, love my rag dolls, says God, including the one you see every morning when you look in the mirror. This is the great commandment. Well, look at this third point, a shared warning. This is where he just has one issue that he wants to bring up. 
and he says it here. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Let's talk about verse 7. He's telling them to be careful about false teachers, but he's not just talking about false teachers in some sort of general, non-specific way. He's thinking about a specific philosophy that was infiltrating the churches as early as the first century. And John was one of the primary opponents to this philosophy. It is a theological system called Gnosticism. Gnostics had a flawed approach because they had taken a sort of platonic ideal that came from Plato. Plato says everything that you see in the world is, is nothing but a shadow, uh, a, a poor representation of, of something perfect and untouchable in the cosmos. Everything around us. Well, what, what that did was the Gnostics developed a system because they began to believe that matter was not only inferior to spirit, but that actually spirit was good and, and matter or physicality was actually evil. Well, the creator God must be so perfect that it's impossible for a perfect God to actually involve himself in creating evil matter. So they developed this philosophical system uh, whereby you have this perfect yet distant God and there are succeedingly less perfect emanations from that God until the God of the Bible is a God far enough removed from the perfection of the creator God, the, the God who who, who spoke everything into existence, he's far enough removed from that God till this God of the Old Testament could now dabble in the physical realities that we call uh, earth. He could create physicality. The idea was that you wanted to be fully spirit and less and less tied to the physical realm. You say, well, this is crazy. Well, um, listen, if I teach you everything I know about Gnosticism, and then I change all the places where I use the word Gnostic, and I substitute the word New Age movement, do you know I wouldn't have to change anything else? The New Age movement of the last generation is nothing but uh, a recycling of Gnosticism. Well, because evil is bad, because spirit is good, guess what? Jesus couldn't really be God in the flesh because God would never wrap himself in the evil that is matter. So, the idea is that Jesus was just some guy until his baptism. The, the, the formal heresy here is called adoptionism. And it was the idea that at his baptism, God's spirit settled on him in sort of a um, kind of a superhero force field presence. 
and, 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 and God used that body of a man named Jesus. And, and in the moment of his baptism, the man named Jesus became the Christ. And when he died on a cross, that presence was removed and returned to God, and the man Jesus dies and is buried. Okay. John has been dealing with this for 50 years at least. And his point, that's why he goes out of his way in the gospel. He, he says, um, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the first chapter of 1 John, he's dealing with the same problem uh, when he starts that little letter with these words. He says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see, right up front in verse 1, he's dealing with this idea that Jesus was a phantasm. He was a ghost. He was a, an apparition. No, we touched him. We handled him. He was real. God became flesh and he lived among us. In 2 John, he's dealing with these same people. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. He's talking about the same opponents, the same false teachers that he's been dealing with in church after church for decades. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. They believed that there was no lasting, permanent incarnation there was just an adoption for a brief time that kind of doctrinal denial cuts at the very root of all that is christian it even opposes jesus in our day liberal progressive theologians who reject scripture even while they claim to wear the name of jesus john says don't be tricked they're deceivers they're an antichrist, not big A, the antichrist, but they are on his team because they are opposed to the very things that the, that the antichrist is opposed to. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. He's focusing on those who attack core doctrines. Now, let me, let me tell you, how much time do we have? Let me tell you this. Christians get bent out of shape over the silliest stuff. If there's anything that I've learned from years of studying the Word of God, it's that I don't have it all figured out. I know that's a disappointment to you. <laughs> but see, I do have the core figured out because the core is presented by the Spirit in unmistakable ways. But we oftentimes find ourselves debating on the peripheral issues because we have the luxury of that. There's just, just within Southern Baptist life, there's like 160 Southern Baptist churches in this metro area. And so if you and I disagree over some little something, we've got 159 other options you can go look at. Let me tell you when the church has unity. <laughs> the church has unity when it remembers 
that if we don't have each other, we don't have anything. I don't have to agree with every single Christian on every single doctrine. But we do have to agree on the core of the gospel. I don't care what denominational label they wear. If the core of the gospel, if their understanding of Jesus Christ, their doctrine of Christology, if it's orthodox, we can figure out how to pull in the same direction. That's why I can work with with somebody in, 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 in other churches that, that, aren't, that don't look like mine or, or don't have the same title on their sign that mine has. But it's also why there are certain boundaries. Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, um, there are, are, are a list of others that I can't partner with because we don't disagree just on peripheral stuff. We disagree on the heart of the matter. John is, and is going to say something very interesting here. Understand, in the, in the ancient world, hospitality was not just a virtue. It was, uh, it was a cultural um, cornerstone. If, you had, if, you, if a guest showed up at your house, you were you are morally obligated to provide hospitality. I mean, it it really wasn't an option. You didn't say, well, you know, we really don't have any extra space. You did what you had to do because hospitality was that foundational to the culture. That's what makes this so dramatic when he says, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished. Now, he's not talking about them losing their salvation, but he's talking about them losing some of their rewards by partnering with people who, who actively work against Jesus Christ. But this is the, let's see, um, verse, verse 9. Anyone who goes too far and does not remain in the teaching of Christ does not have God. That's the core. Remember, we're not talking about the periphery. We're talking about the core. He says he does not have God. The one who remains in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Now, verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... The gospel that you've heard from me and from others who are in the faith. If he comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house. Do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. You know how countercultural that is? He's saying stand against the expectations of your neighbors even. When it comes to holding the line on what is true, we don't dabble with those who are antichrist, who are deceivers. Well, a shared joy, verses 12 and 13. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be made complete. He admits that this correspondence is inadequate compared to a personal visit, and he's planning to do just such a visit. And he anticipates that when they get together, the shared family bond will produce a tremendous joy that they'll share. He sends greetings from a sister church, This whole letter, it's the simplest Greek in the New Testament. It's written at the lowest 
educational level of any New Testament letter. It's very simple. It's a children's sermon uh, of a cor- of a, of a co- correspondence. But it is filled with deep significance. I was doing some preparation today for a wedding that I'm performing uh, this weekend. And it dawned on me because I was reading this simple letter. Simple, easy Greek. And I realized that the significance is not in the complexity of the language. Any more so than the wedding that I'm about to do. It may be fairly elaborate and there'll be lots of details to work out and there'll be lots of people that have different jobs. But you know, the wedding, the significance of the wedding comes down to this. I do. That's what this book, that's what this little letter is like. Not complex in its theology, not uh, overwhelming in its uh, complexity. It's an old man pastor writing to people that he loves in the faith, reminding them to walk in love with each other, to hold the line in truth against those who are against Jesus. And hopefully, we'll get to see each other face to face and we'll have a great joy that we share because we love one another. And the whole world will be able to tell we belong to Jesus because they'll see that about us. Father, thank you for this little brief book, these 13 verses. Thank you for John for his faithfulness over the course of the better part of a century. Father, give us understanding, illumine our minds by your Spirit. As we prepare next week to come back to this place and and look at 3 John, Father, may your Spirit always be the primary teacher in this place. Open your Word. Implant it in our minds. Let us walk in the light, in the love, in the peace that comes from God the Father and Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.